morning's reading will be a long one. The first Samuel chapter fourteen verses one through thirty. So now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on yonder side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sene. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the opposite side, or on the south side, of, I'm sorry, and the other on the south opposite uh, Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. And when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer, and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer put some and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison, the raiders, even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. 
when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food, and all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when, there, when, when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people answered and said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. He even got the names right. Um, good morning. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, before they, or as they're going, uh, but before we pray, I just want to make a quick announcement so that when we pray, it won't come as a surprise. Uh, Ebony gave birth this week, so Tommy Williams the Fourth is uh, is now with us in the uh, in the in the world. So. Um, we're going to pray for them and, and just praise them for that. So let's go ahead and pray. Um, Lord, we gather this morning and we gather around your word to hear of your grace and your strength and how you care and deliver your people. Um, thank you for your word to us in that way. And Father, we want to praise you for the safe arrival of, of Tommy the Fourth and uh, for Ebony's recovery. Lord, we ask that she would be healing and, and gaining strength. Lord, for Tommy, as he's uh, now a, a father and, and caring for his family, um, and also, Lord, having to deal with some uh, family issues beyond just um, his, uh, Ebony and Tommy, Tommy Four, Tommy the Fourth. Uh, so we pray that you would bless that family with a, an extra measure of strength and wisdom and grace as they, um, they pursue your loving kindness in this world and celebrate the birth of their child. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, Melissa Bohannon's uh, surgery went really well. She's here with us this morning. I pray that the, the healing and the recovery would be smooth and easy. Lord, that the new heart valve would have its purpose and, and restore her strength. And uh, Lord, that uh, this would be the beginning of the end of them working on her heart. So Lord, bring her healing, we pray. Father, we want to pray for our brother Bob Burris, who's uh, going to spend pretty much this month in Africa teaching as he goes to Sierra Leone and to Liberia. Uh, Lord, I thank you for his work with the pastors there. I pray that you would use him to strengthen the church in those African nations and that uh, his, his teaching would be a blessing to the men who come to listen. And so go with him, give him safe travels, keep him safe while he's there, and, uh, and bring him home uh, safely as well. But Lord, mostly we pray that uh, 
that the name of Jesus would be glorified um, amongst Bob and the people he's training, but then when those men go back to their churches, that they too would know how to preach the gospel of Jesus more clearly and be strengthened by that. Uh, Father, I think of the, um, the awakening, the revival, the, whatever was going on in Asbury and how that's now been uh, shut down. They've dispersed uh, the groups uh, because the tiny little town couldn't support the, uh, the revival tourists. But Lord, that doesn't constrain your hand. That doesn't uh, stop your hand. And so Lord, if, if what was happening there and, and other uh, things that were happening is the beginning of you bringing revival to our land, then Lord, we pray, bring, bring it, bring revival to us. Holy Spirit, would you convict many of their need for Jesus Christ? And so whatever you've begun there, Lord, we pray that it would continue. And uh, Lord, would you bring revival to us personally, to our church, to our town, to this valley, and to our nation. We desperately need it. We need, need to be woken from our slumbers and, and reminded that Jesus saves. So have mercy on us. And Father, I want to pray this morning for um, our um, fellow EV Free Church, uh, Church of the Canyons in Canyon Country, as they have their senior pastor candidate. Uh, preaching this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, you would bring the right man to that pulpit, to that church, and that this might be the end of their quest for uh, for the senior pastors. So whatever is happening this morning with them, Lord, we just pray that your spirit is active and working, and you would make it abundantly clear to the whole congregation if this is the right man for the position. Um, Father, put the person that you know they need in their um, in their church, and we pray for um, for growth and for strength and uh, clear Bible teaching for them. Um, bless them, we pray. And Lord, now be with us as we turn to your word. Help us to understand what you're uh, telling us this morning and, and to get our head around it. And most importantly, Lord, to have it sink into our heart that we might grow in grace and trust you more. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, there was a popular video on the internet from 2005. So early days of the internet kind of getting big. Um, it is uh, a video. It's just the screen the, uh, it was some people playing a video game, and you just watch the screen. Uh, they were playing a game called World of Warcraft, which is kind of a Dungeons and Dragons thing, and you've got different characters and all this. It's what's called a um, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. There's tons of people logged in and playing this game. Um, so the way that this, this video starts is there's this whole team of characters standing outside this door. And they're discussing, do we even need to go in there? And somebody says, yeah, Leroy needs this magic shield or magic armor that will really help him if we go in there. So, okay, well, we've been in there a number of times and we've gotten beat every time. So here's what we're going to do. And so the leader starts strategizing, explaining how we're going to do this. And I'll come in and I'll cast this spell and then we'll take out as many as we can. And then the next person will come in 30 seconds later and then we'll do this and this and this. And they go through all these elaborate, um, detailed plans. And the, the character, Leroy, hasn't moved, hasn't said a word, hasn't done anything. So as they're wrapping up these, these very detailed plans, all of a sudden, Leroy yells his name, Leroy Jenkins, and charges into the room. And everybody's like, Wait, what? <laughs> well, and, and they said, well, should we go after him? Yeah, we got to go in. So they charge into this room, and this room is just filled with these bat creatures that are taking them out. And so they're trying their plan. They're trying to execute their plan, and it just isn't working. They're, they're getting slaughtered in this thing. So the, end, the video is winding down to an end, and all the characters are dead on the floor. And the leader says, Leroy, you are stupid. And Leroy says, well, at least I got chicken. 
what had happened was Leroy had stepped away from his computer to get some chicken. And so when he came back, he's just like, he didn't hear any of the detailed plans. He just hopped in, charged in, and he was going to do his thing. And uh, so that, that meme, that picture, is still popular today. And every once in a while, you hear somebody say Leroy Jenkins. They, Le they Leroy Jenkins it. That is, somebody charged in foolishly, without concern for anybody else, just rushed in and ruined it. So um, I, I think it's funny that this is from 2005, and we can still refer to people as pulling a Leroy Jenkins. Um, what we're going to see this morning is um, Jonathan is not Leroy Jenkins. Um, this is kind of the opposite of the Leroy Jenkins story, what's about to happen. Uh, this is part of a larger piece, like Jim said this morning, it's a large section that we read, and I could have probably trimmed it off earlier, but what we're going to do is, is we're going to try to take this bigger story in a few pieces. And so we'll back up next week and read some of the stuff that Jim read this week. We're trying to keep the whole thing together. It's a big story. And that's kind of the way it works with Old Testament narrative, is you have to take big chunks. So that's unfortunately what we're going to do. So I hope you can uh, try to weave this together. I'll try to remind us of where we're at in the story. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see um, this tale of two men. And we're going to learn a very important lesson that God saves by many or by few or sometimes by one. Um, and, and that's the beginning of the story. So we're in 1 Samuel um, we were kind of in this transition period. Remember the first part of 1 Samuel was there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was setting us up for this desire for a king. And then over the last couple of weeks, we got the king. It's Saul. And, and his first introduction was promising. He, he beat his enemies. He led extremely well. And then it's not gone so well. So last week we saw um, he foolishly offered a sacrifice and was rejected. So now we're in this position where we go, well, Saul's still the king, but he's been rejected, and so we're waiting what comes next. And the promise was, God said, I found, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And so now that's where we're at. We come into this story. And it starts with, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, um, said to the young man who carried his armor. Um, I, when I think of the young man who carried his armor, I always picture a young man carrying armor. Uh, but this is a job title, not necessarily a description of what he's actively doing at the moment. They're, they're facing their enemies. I don't think he's carrying the armor. I think Jonathan's got his armor on. But in the old days, the knights had a squire who would fit them and help them. And, and this was actually a role that he's going to go into battle as well. He's not just standing there holding armor. Um, he, he's helping Jonathan be ready. So he says, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. So where we're at, last week we saw... Um, Jonathan had charged into a Philistine garrison and wiped him out. He and a thousand men went in and just took him out. And, and Israel is celebrating and, and cheering, but the word got out to the Philistines. And do you remember what the Philistines' response was? They sent a ton of chariots, a ton of horsemen, and foot soldiers you couldn't count. And so where Saul started with an army of 3,000, as he's waiting that seven days for Samuel to show up, that, that army dwindled to about 600. And, and that's when he foolishly offered the sacrifice and was rejected as king. We're not going back to that same story. This is a different garrison. It's even a different Hebrew word. It still means garrison, but it's a different, different Hebrew word. I think the author is trying to clue us in. This is not a repeat. Um, we're, we're, we're standing here. We're facing a, 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 a Philistine garrison. The army is probably still arrayed behind them. Um, and so Jonathan is, is there. He's ready to go out. He says, let's go take a look at what we're facing. 
And then it says he didn't tell his father. This is going to come up a little bit. So Saul, where's Saul? Saul, meanwhile, is on the outskirts of Gibeah. And in the ESV, it says uh, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And then um, Jim read from the New American Standard, and that said under the pomegranate tree, uh, I think is what it said. So the question is, what's going on here? This is one of those little ticky-tacky textual questions i got to answer real quick. Um, what the Hebrew says is he was at or under or by the pomegranate. It doesn't say tree or cave. So you, the translators have to make a, a decision. What's it talking about? Um, so the reason I think the ESV goes with the pomegranate cave, that this was a known cave, was because uh, in last chapter it said that Israel was all hiding in caves. Plus, in Judges 20, it talks about, in this basically about the same area, um, the rock, the pomegranate rock. And so the idea is maybe that's what it's referring to. Um, I tend to lean with the majority commentators and think this is under a pomegranate tree because there's no qualifier on pomegranate. It's just that. Um, so he's probably sitting up on a hill or in, in some area where there's a pomegranate tree and he's sitting under it. Um, and the people who were with him were about 600. So what we get, the way this story lines up is we get these two men put forward. We get Saul and his son Jonathan. And they're put into two diff very different situations. They're, they're behaving very differently. And the author doesn't want us to forget that Saul has been rejected as king. So the very next thing he says is, there were 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahetub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, if you remember that, earlier when we met Eli, a man of God came to Eli and said that his family was cursed that he was going to be cut off because he wasn't restraining his children, because they were abusing their, their priestly office. And, and what the man of God said was that there will come a day when they'll be begging to just be put in a priestly office just so they can get something to eat. So the, what you see is the rejected king with the son of a rejected priest. And they're on one side. And what's on the other side is Jonathan. And so that's, that's who they are. That's where it lines up. So what it says is within the passes, which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there's a rocky crag on each side. So there's these rocky outcroppings and this gap between them. And one of the sides was called Bozaz, and the other one was called Shia. And Bozaz means muddy or slippery, and Shia means bramble. So you can picture the situation. We're facing an enemy, and what's lying between us is a big gulf that you're going to have to climb up, and one side of it is really slippery, like mud. The other side is full of brambles. Not a, not a promising place. This is not a place you want to go have a war. You want it out in an open field. So that's, that's the picture that we have. The, the crag rises up between them. So what Jonathan then does is now the, the camera is going to shift, and we're going to focus on Jonathan for a bit. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And that really is, I think, the main theme of this section is the Lord can save by many or by few. And so what Jonathan's plan is, he says, we'll go present ourselves. We'll come out of hiding where we've been. We'll go up into that valley and we'll present ourselves to the garrison. And then here's what we're going to do. If they say, if they come down to us, then we'll stand still. And if they call us up, then we'll go up and we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. What I think he means by this is, if we stand still and they come down to us, 
they have deserted a fortified position. They have made themselves vulnerable climbing down these, these dangerous cliffs. And, and they're ours. We'll win. And if they call us up, then we're in it strategically the tactical bad situation because we're scrambling up this, this difficult thing to climb. We might drop stuff. We're going to appear at the top of the thing in, in a vulnerable position. But we'll know that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so that's his plan, is, is this is the approach that we're going to take. And so what the Philistines say is they say, come up here and we'll show you a thing. We'll come up and we'll, we'll teach you something. So they taunt them. They see the, the Hebrews. Oh, look, these, these little chicken Hebrews are coming out of their hiding holes. And Come on up here, boys. And so that's, that's the call. And Jonathan's like, man, that's what I was waiting for. Really? You want to you want to climb up this this dangerous cliff and go face a bunch of bad guys? This guy's insane, in in the best possible way. So they, he goes up and he um, he climbs up and strikes him. And so now what happens is Jonathan is charging through this this garrison. And he's he's taking people out. He's either uh, killing them on the spot or knocking them down. And then right behind him comes his armor bearer who's finishing the job. So if somebody's injured, he's going to kill him on the spot. And it causes this huge panic in the garrison. It just goes insane. Um, they're, they're, they didn't expect the Hebrews to do this. This was unanticipated. And so they begin to scatter. Cue Saul. Now the, the camera switches over to Saul. And so Saul hears from the watchman that what's going on? There's something happening in the garrison. What is happening over there? And so he, he says, somebody's attacking. Who is it? Nobody knows because nobody saw Saul or uh, Jonathan go over. So they do a quick count, head count. Who's missing? Jonathan. That's, that's great news because Jonathan's already got history with taking out Philistine garrisons. So this is great. So then Saul says, bring the Ark of the Lord because the Ark of the Lord traveled with them. Remember the last time they brought the Ark of the Lord into a battle? They lost it. So they haven't learned their lesson. They're still trotting the, the ark out as if it's some sort of good luck charm. But once he hears what's going on and the, the, the turmoil in the camp keeps rising, he says, withdraw your hand. And I think that's, that's a way of saying, uh, never mind. Bring, bring the ark, and then he hears it gets working. He says, never mind, we don't need it. Leave it there. So then Saul and all the people rally with him to battle. So now the, the Philistines are, are put to flight, we're going to go. And it says in verse 21, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who'd gone up with them into the camp, um, even they also turned to be with the Israelites. So there were Hebrews who had worked with the Philistines in the garrison. And as the attack is mounting, even those guys turn and they start in the fight. So that's, that's the, where they're going to go is they're going to go fight this fight now because Jonathan has uh, put them uh, to flight. He's put them out. Um, now, the story keeps going, and we'll probably back up and hit this more next week. I just wanted to have that read so we have that overlap. Um, one of the things that you have to ask yourself when you read Old Testament narrative is, where do we fit into the story? So when you read an epistle, it's easy because Paul says, here's a truth, and here's the application, and we go, got it. But when you read narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, you're not told specifically, here's a doctrine and you have to believe it. Instead, you're given a story. You're given a picture. So with this one, how do we fit in? How do we connect with this? What, what does this have to say to us? It's a, it's a fascinating story, but how do we connect with it? And remember at the beginning, I said it's a tale of two men. It's a tale of Saul and, and uh, Jonathan. 
And so the immediate reaction is, your immediate thought is, well, I'll look at these two men because they're the stars of this and see what should I learn from that. Well, look at Jonathan. Jonathan is brave. He steps out of hiding. The rest of Israel is either gone home or is hiding in, in, in the shadows, and he steps forward. He's, he's a man who's going to face his opposition head on. He's not afraid, but he's also a man of faith. He steps out and he says, look, this is the enemy, and, and God is with us, so we're going to fight him any way we can because God's going to be with us. We trust him. And so th this is a laudable thing. This is the kind of person you want to be like. Be like Jonathan. Be a man of, of faith, a man of action, a decisive leader, one who steps out and faces his problems head on. And then the other person is Saul. Well, what's Saul doing? Hanging out? He's not doing anything. He's not planning. He's not uh, uh, advancing the, the battle at all. He's, he's hiding out until, wow, now the, the, the battle is won. I'm going to charge in and avenge myself. And he's, he's going to tack his name onto this thing. Don't be like Saul. That's not bad, right? I, I think that's, that's not bad. Be like Jonathan. Don't be like Saul. But I don't think that's what the author intended. And when we interpret scripture, one of the first things you have to ask is, what is the authorial intent? What did the author intend by this? Now, I kind of chafe at that a little bit because there's no way we're going to know what the author intended. We don't even know who wrote this or when they wrote it. But you can kind of infer what's going on. And so, like I said at the beginning, what is the book of 1 Samuel about? The need of a king. It's not how to be a good Christian. It's we need a king in Israel. That was the author's intent. But don't forget with the scriptures, it's not just the author that's writing. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote what God wanted written. And so there's what's called the analogy of faith, this, this idea that the whole Bible has got this long arching story that God has inspired. And so the authorial intent is we need a king. Now God's intent with this is he's going to show us what a king looks like. He, he's going to lead us to a certain point with this. So here's the picture is maybe what we should say is, I don't need to identify with Saul. How can I? He's a unique person. He's the first king of Israel. I can't be the first king of Israel. I can't make kingly decisions for a nation. I'm, that's not my role in the kingdom of God. And, and, and Jonathan? Man, I wish I was more like Jonathan. I would love to be able to identify with him. More often than not, I'll measure myself against Jonathan and go, I'm a failure. Man, well, I didn't do that. I wasn't that brave. Well, we're talking about God's people here, and so if we're not Saul and we're not Jonathan, who else are we? Well, there are, there, there's Israel. There are the people that are with them. And so see if this doesn't fit us. Israel had an army of 3,000. Almost all of them left and went home. So that's us. And then there's still 600 hanging out with them. And where are they? Well, what we heard at the end of or beginning of last chapter in, in verses 6 and 7 is that when the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal with the people following him trembling. That sounds more like me. That sounds more, I, I need... To, I, I need to be a better leader, but I need a good leader too. And so maybe this is where we fit in, is identify ourselves as the ones needing deliverance in this, not the ones who are going to go out and affect it. Now, there's a, there's a problem with this, 
that the author is going to answer for us. We need a leader. Is Saul going to be that leader? Saul's already been rejected. He made a foolish vow last week, and, and what we're going to see at the end of this, chapter, or this section, he made a dumb decision today. Nobody eat. Napoleon Bonaparte said, an army marches on its belly. And he didn't mean that they crawl like snakes. What he meant was, you have to provision your army. You've got to feed these people. They've got to be fed and equipped and ready for battle. And he didn't invent that. That was known for millennia. He just put it in, in, in helpful terms. Saul apparently does not understand that. And nobody's going to eat until I'm avenged. So we need a leader, and it's not Saul. What do we get instead? We get the king of Israel's greater son. If you put the two in a, in a scale, Jonathan and Saul, I think Jonathan is the greater of the two. So what we get is we need, we're, we're trembling, we're stuck in, in rocks and, and holes and, and cisterns and tombs and we're hiding and we need a leader who's going to come out and deliver us. And it's not the king, it's the king's greater son. And the king's greater son is going to come out and he's going to win the battle and then lead us into it. And, and that's the picture that we should be going for. Does that sound at all familiar? When we get to David, David is going to be the king. He's going to be the one that God has picked. And David is going to do some wonderful things. He is going to settle the nation. He's going to unify the tribes, and he's going to secure the nations. The borders are going to be set. He's going to suppress all the enemies around him. He's going to bring peace to Israel through his might. He is the military leader we need. But there are foes that David can't face. There are foes, there are enemies that he is powerless against. So what we hear is at a certain point, he's instead of resting under a pomegranate tree, he's resting on the roof of his, his palace. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And so the enemy that he is unable to conquer at this point is lust. And he brings her into the palace and he gets her pregnant. And so this, this enemy he was not able to wrestle against, this lust has now got him in big trouble. And where does that lead? Because he's been the victim of lust, now he's going to commit murder. It just gets worse. It doesn't get any better. And then later on in his life, he's, he's so far been a humble leader, a good man, but later on in his life, he decides, I'm going to number the, the uh, people of Israel. I want to count how big my army is. And his military folks say, sir, don't do this. You don't need to do this. And he orders them to do it anyway. And God says, this is sin and brings judgment on him. So the, the enemy that he'd been able to elude for a long part of his life, pride, finally catches up to him. And he can't deal with it. So even the King David needs his greater son to come in and defeat enemies he couldn't defeat. And so from the New Testament, we get to Jesus. And Jesus is called the son of David. He is David's greater son. And the foes that Jesus is going to oppose are not military. He's going to go against things that we can't touch, enemies that we had no power over. And just to pick three of them, he's going to deal with sin, he's going to deal with death, and he's going to deal with hell, enemies we were powerless against. And we see that in David. He could not overcome those enemies. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this. I don't want to draw this out too much, but I think it's really fascinating where Israel was hiding in chapter 13. They were hiding in hole, caves, holes, and rocks, in tombs, and in cisterns. So let's take tombs first. What, what is in a tomb? Dead people. 
So they're in death. They are trapped in this, this death place, and they can't get out because the enemy is, is opposing them. The enemy is standing out there. They're afraid to leave this. They need to be delivered from these tombs. They need to be sent out of the tombs. And the way they're sent out is with king's greater son comes and defeats their enemy, and then they can leave. The next two are a little bit of a stretch. Work with me on this. I hope I'm not being too clever. I prayed this week, Lord, don't let me be too clever. But I just find it convicting and interesting. The other place they hid was caves, holes, and rocks. So in caves, holes, and rocks, that's in the earth. And you think of stories like Korah's Rebellion, where they said, we don't need Moses, we'll do it ourselves. The earth opens up and swallows them. And what, what uh, Moses tells us is that they went alive down into Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. It's under the earth. When you get to the New Testament, the idea of hell or Hades, it's the underworld. It's, it's the world underneath us. It's kind of like Sheol, a place of the dead, but in the New Testament, it begins to take a place of, of punishment. So where these people are stuck is they're stuck in hell, in the belly of the earth, until David's greater son, or until the king's greater son comes and releases them, defeats their enemy, and lets them out. And cisterns, Again, I don't want to make too much out of this, and, and I'm not going to run with it. Cisterns are not a unique, um, uh, universal symbol of something. But in the book of Jeremiah, um, the cisterns, it, it represents something. It represents a, 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 a truth. In, in chapter 2, it says, For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the cistern in that picture is, here's God, this overflowing, giving person, this, this being who, who wants to have you. And instead of taking him, that rejecting him is one evil, the other one is going out and hewing out a cistern that's broken that you can't put water in and going down and trying to lap up water out of this broken cistern. It represents this turning away from God. It represents sin. Now, it doesn't universally because um, later on in, in um, Jeremiah, he's going to be thrown into a cistern, and it's not representing him being thrown into sin. So I don't want to push it too much, but you could say that, that that's what that represents. So here's the picture then. We, Israel, are stuck. We are stuck in this place of the dead. We are stuck in a representation of our sin, and we're stuck in this place that kind of represents hell under the earth. Now, hell is not a physical place. It is a spiritual reality. Um, but it's pictured as a physical place. How do we get out of this? We are stuck in these things. We are not able to go out and do the things that we would desire to do to, to live that godly life. So how do we get out of this? Well, David's greater son comes, and David's greater son comes and he deals with sin. He, he faced 40 days of temptation in the wilderness and didn't fold. He stood to it. He, he was tempted at uh, his mock trial. Well, let's back up one. He was tempted before his mock trial in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays, Lord, I make this pass away from me, but not what I want, what you want. So he was tempted to abandon the mission, and he doesn't. He's, he knows what's coming, the physical, spiritual torment that's coming, and he doesn't back down. In his mock trial, he looks Pilate in the face and says, look, I could call down legions of angels and take you out, but I'm not going to. So he's tempted again to, to thwart the plan. And then on the cross, he could have been angry and bitter with everybody around him. Lord, strike all these people. They're horrible. And instead he says, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
So he's facing this temptation, and he resists it. Sin didn't get the best of him. But even better than that, the scriptures say that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus, who had no sin, who was actively righteous, who was not just innocent, but actively righteous, took on himself our sin, and he died to it. He took the burden that we, we should get. The Apostles' Creed says that he suffered, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Now, the way the Reformers understood that descended into hell was not that he went to hell until the resurrection, but that on the cross, he endured the pains of hell. God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, enduring the pains of hell that we deserve. So Jesus defeats sin. He breaks sin. The, the penalty that we owed, he took upon himself and he, he canceled it. He overcame it personally and he canceled it for us. The greater king has now set us free. You can leave that cave of sin. You can step out because he's defeated it. He's, he's taken its, its power away. What Romans 5 says is, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there's this interconnection between death and sin. Since Jesus has canceled sin, since he has broken sins held, he's also freed us from death. He offers us eternal life. In Hebrews 2, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and destroy all those who through fear uh, and, um, and deliver all those through who fear of death were subject lifelong to slavery. Because he defeated sin, he crushes death. He cancels death out on our part. So now if we are set free from, from sin and death has no permanent hold on us, we will only suffer physical death. We won't suffer eternal death. Then what happens to hell? Hell's canceled. Hell's gone. We don't face an eternity in hell. We face an eternity with him. We sang about the new Jerusalem and, and being in the city with God where there is no temple. And, and that's the joy that we have. So we have been set free. The greater king has stepped into our place. He has taken on the enemies. And it's not just sin, death, and hell. He also defeated Satan and a number of other things. But he, he stepped into our place and he defeated that enemy. Israel, come out of the caves. The, the, the king has defeated the enemy. They are on the run. The king's greater son has, has defeated them. And what's great is he, he wants us to come out of the caves, not to just stand and watch. He says, now come with me and join in in the cleanup operation. Join me as we go forward and we keep taking more and more ground. As we regain what was lost to the Philistines, we're going to do more. And so that's Jesus telling us, go, make disciples of all nations. That's Jesus telling us, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We've been called out of those tombs, set free from those things that held us down. And now Jesus is saying, join me in the cleanup operation. I've defeated the enemies. They're, they're routed. We just now need to, to clean up the, the property. We need to retake those things that they've stolen from us. I've defeated the strong man. We need a king in Israel. We don't need Saul. Saul is going to come in and he's going to try to draw attention to himself and all of this. And it's about him and I'm going to be avenged and, and do all this. There's good news with Saul here too. Don't miss this. God rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Did he reject him from being a um, member of Israel? 
Saul is still one of God's people. And so even as Saul charges foolishly into this battle, starving his people and, um, and putting his name forward, I will be avenged, even then God still gives him victory. God didn't say, well, you're, you're going to be like that, you're going to lose. The good news, folks, is as we've been set free from those caves and those tombs and those cisterns, as we join in the battle, even if we screw it up like Saul, God's still going to give us victory. Why? Because God can deliver by many, by few, or by one, by Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid of doing this wrong. We don't have to be afraid of, man, I better get everything exactly right or, or we're going to lose. We're not going to lose. The king has already won. We're engaged in the, in the cleanup battle. So even in this, Saul is a, a picture of hope. Because as goofy as he is, as, as bad of decisions he made, they still won. The last phrase there was, though, the victory wasn't as big as it could have been. So don't get lazy and think, well, I can just screw this up on purpose. The victory is not going to be as big as it could have been. You want to be engaged in the mission that Jesus is called to, and we want that to be as big as it possibly can be. But it doesn't depend on us, because the king's greater son is going to win our battle. And so this is the picture that's set up at the beginning here. This is how it's framed. And then what we'll do next week is we'll see where this goes. And what I think the author is trying to do is drive in the point into our hearts. We do need a king, but we need the right king. And there's a question that's raised here, because if you're reading this for the first time, you've never heard this before, and you're going through, last week we were told God rejected Saul from being king over Israel and said, I am searching for a man after my own heart. Who is a, who's else is in this story? Jonathan, doesn't he look like a man after God's own heart? He's got promise. And so the question, I think this begins to raise the question, what about Jonathan? Couldn't he do it? We can reject Saul, but, but Jonathan looks like he's got all the characteristics that we want in a good king. And, and we've drawn this contrast out. You're going to hate me for this. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to let the text take us to the point where we get the answer to that question. Because the picture that we get of Jonathan is a good man, a good leader. But Jonathan's going to help us understand why not Jonathan, why David. But we have to wait till we get there. So, sorry. I, I don't mean to play games, but like I said, Lord, please don't make me too clever. <laughs> I don't want this to be too clever. So there you are. We've got Israel's king's greater son winning our battle and then inviting us into it calling us into the cleanup operation, to be engaged with him. That's where we're going. That's, that's what we're called to. And that's why this picture of the king, getting the right king in the right place, is, is important. Any other king we put on that throne is going to do something like tell us we can't eat before the battle and the victory won't be as great. Once we get Jesus on that throne, once we say that's the king we're following, we're assured of victory. And we're sure of great victory because of him. Let's pray. Lord, there's um, many illustrations that you use in the New Testament to talk about the mission we're on. Um, think of it as a, a field uh, with wheat and tares growing in it. Uh, Lord, as um, a race to be run, as a number of things. And it even includes military metaphors that uh, we are engaged in the battle. And so, Lord, as, as we engage in this battle, as we, we don our, our gear, as, Lord, we climb out of the holes that you've liberated us from, 
as you've destroyed the enemies that kept us pinned down. Lord, would you give us the bravery, the heart to follow after you and have a great victory. Um, Lord, thank you for Jonathan being a role model for us, an inspiration um, to, to know, Lord, that you give the victory and that uh, it's all in your hands. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and defeating the enemies that we couldn't lay a finger on. We had no opportunity to oppose them. But, Lord, you took them on. You trampled over death by death. You canceled sin, having a, a, the, the writ canceled on the cross. And, Lord, hell has no power. The, the keys to, to hell and death have been given to you. And you're in charge. Thank you for that, Lord. Give us the faith to trust you in those things and to follow in the battle. Amen.